when people talk about me like I'm going to war, that's a that's an excuse for it means it's okay if something bad happens to me if I get sick. You know, we've signed up for the risk. But you know, I didn't sign up for risk. I signed up with the hope that this school, the hospital would protect me adequately, you know, to the best of their ability. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Dr. Emily Silverman, a physician located in San Francisco who is also the host of The Nocturnists, a podcast dedicated to the project of humanizing healthcare professionals. Together we talked about the challenges of being a doctor in the time of the coronavirus, as well as the new tactic of storytelling she's employed for this season of The Nocturnists, which is to curate audio diaries sent in by more than 250 healthcare workers around the country as they report their own personal account of dealing with the new normal of the pandemic. So I wanted to start off our conversation just by asking you, what is it like to be a physician during the time of COVID-19? If you could just give me a little bit of like the the personal uh, overview of how it's been for you, as well as what has it been like in practice? Sure. I can speak for myself, certainly. I think the physician experience during COVID-19 is really variable and diverse depending on who you are, where you are, what your specialty is, what your situation is. I've remained relatively untouched. I work at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and when COVID hit, the way that the schedule was set up was that I spent the first few weeks of the pandemic working hospital shifts, but not taking care of COVID patients um, because the team that they transformed into the COVID team was just not a team that I happened to be on during that month. So some of my colleagues were on that team. And for them, it was just like, surprise, now your team is the COVID team. And that was a decision that was kind of made for them which I can't imagine what that must have felt like for them. But for me, I started off the pandemic really looking at things through the lens of somebody who's still in the hospital, still working, still taking care of patients, but just not really um, seeing this first crop of COVID patients. And so what I would do is see my colleagues and then check in with them and say, how's it going and what is it like and how are you feeling and really experiencing it vicariously through them. Later in the month, our division realized that you know it would be better to spread it out so that not the same group of physicians were repeatedly getting exposed. And so eventually my schedule was swapped so that I would pick up some of these COVID shifts. So my first encounter on the COVID service was in mid-April. It was a really weird experience. In some ways, being on the COVID service was easier than being on the regular service. I was actually talking about this recently with a friend of mine who uh, was a resident in the ICU. And basically, medicine is designed around a context that existed like 100, 150 years ago. So 100, 150 years ago, there were no computers, there were no pagers, doctors came into the hospital, they worked face-to-face with their patients, with nurses. They had maybe 20 or 30 medicines 
in their armamentarium to use that they had to master. There were no um, cardiac stents. There were no complicated chemotherapy regimens. Um, there were no, you know, 95-year-olds with really long, complicated past medical histories because the life expectancy just wasn't that long. I mean, of course, some people lived into their 90s, but it, you know, wasn't as many people as do now. The social situation was different. Um, most people had families and support systems and communities that they were discharged back to. Most physicians were men, and so they had a built-in support system in the form of their wives. Today, physicians come to work. They spend over half of their time at a computer putting data into the computer, very little face-to-face -face time with the nurse, really not a whole lot of face-to-face -face time with the patient. Um, I would say maybe 10 minutes a day, sometimes less if it's a quick visit. And then, you know, if you're disclosing a new diagnosis or something like that, maybe you sit down and spend half an hour or something like that, but really not as much face-to-face -face time. Um, we have way more than 20 to 30 medicines in our belt. In fact, uh, modern medicine has expanded so much that in a way, there's really no way that you can keep your arms around the constantly growing and evolving understanding of medicine and medical technologies and medical devices and different protocols. And so you're constantly having to update and re-update your understanding and kind of surrender to the fact that you'll never know it all and rely on specialists and it's more collaborative. The pager is going off constantly, so there's constant cognitive interruption. Physicians now are women and men and people who don't fall into either of those categories, all of whom are juggling their professional lives with childcare responsibilities in a way that, you know, it wasn't the same 100, 150 years ago. And so the way that hospital staffing and clinic staffing evolved is really not working anymore because we're just in a new era. And when COVID hit, suddenly hospitals were forced to innovate and create these new teams from a blank canvas from scratch. So, you know, let's build a COVID team. What would that look like? How would it be staffed? How many hours in a row would we be working? How are we going to make sure that people have time to rest and take care of themselves and protect themselves? And we are finding, I think, in San Francisco, which, again, is a city that has not been hit as hard as places like New York City, Detroit, New Orleans, um, the Native American uh, places. But in our hospital... It's been actually really exciting and invigorating to see the way that um, COVID has forced people to innovate and build these teams from the ground up that actually work. And so anyway, this is all a very long way of saying that being on the old hospital team, it's kind of like the usual, the usual burnout, the usual frustrations, the usual, you know, this was designed during a time where it didn't make sense or where it made sense then and now it doesn't make sense. But then when you go onto the COVID team, you're like, wow, this is a model that was designed five days ago and it was designed to work and it does work. And so in a way, being on the COVID team, the, the doctor-patient ratio is lower and safer. There's just more time built in for you to think and I mean, what would it look like to have the chance to sit down for 15 minutes totally uninterrupted and think about your renal failure, you know, or your acute respiratory distress system and to not be interrupted? I mean, that just feels so luxurious and just wonderful. So in some ways, I looked at my colleagues who were on the COVID service and I thought, well, 
they're being exposed to this virus and that is really stressful. But on the other hand, I looked at them and I said, wow, they only have five patients on their list today. That's kind of amazing. Uh, I have 12 patients on my list and it's so overwhelming that, you know, I don't have as much time as I would like to dedicate to each of those 12 patients. And so I think one of the things that COVID has brought into really sharp relief for me is that medicine has been really slow to innovate and to update its own models to the rapidly changing times. But COVID has forced us to do that in a really accelerated way and in a way that's really exciting. And I hope that some of the changes and innovations that have been made in the setting of COVID will continue after COVID because it's just plain better and safer. Yeah, that's really great. Really interesting to hear you speak about that because during our first interview, I think that if there was a critique for you of the work that you've been doing, it's the infrastructure and the way it functions in sort of the the modern world. And so it's a really interesting point to hear you talk about sort of the silver lining that's come out of this crisis. I want to get to the work that you've been doing on your podcast, The Nocturnist, but I just had a, like a question or two to continue about the your personal experience of working during the coronavirus. And what has it been like to communicate with patients while wearing a mask? Well, what has it been like to sort of attempt to connect in a way in, in which it's a lot more difficult to showcase emotions? Great question. Before COVID, I was very hands-on with my patients, and I mean that in a literal way. I'm the type of person who loves to go in and sit on the edge of the bed and, you know, touch the patient's back or hold the patient's hand or, you know, um, just kind of interact with them in a way that's physical um, because there's so much healing that happens with the laying of the hands on a patient and so much um, connection that happens from that. And I have to admit, it's been very strange to walk into the room of a patient with COVID and they're wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask. Uh, In fact, I uh, sometimes would be wearing two masks. I'd be wearing my N95 and then a surgical mask over it and then my face shield and then my gown and my gloves. And I remember there was one day where I went into a room and it was a patient who was elderly. I think he was in his 80s or 90s. He was hard of hearing. English was not his first language. I can't remember whether he spoke Cantonese or Tagalog or it was a non-English speaking patient. And um, and my mouth was covered. And so I went into the room and I you know, was trying to avoid touching him because, of course, we're all trying to minimize the physical contact that we're having with each other right now, specifically with the COVID positive patients, which I imagine is very isolating and lonely for the patients. And I think for the doctors, especially someone like me who really likes to touch and interact, it feels very weird. And so I go in there and I just stand there and I look at him and I look at his breathing and I look at the monitor, I look at his oxygen. And then in order to communicate with him, I take the translator phone out, call a translator. And so here I am in this room trying to communicate with this man through a phone translator and he's hard of hearing and he can't see my face. And so there isn't the same like facial expression um, dimension to the interaction. And it just feels crappy. Like I walked out of the room after that and I thought to myself, like this is just not the same level of care that I would normally be providing. So 
you may have seen in the news, there are different ways that doctors have been trying to get around this. For example, some of them are pinning like photos of themselves to their gowns so that the patient can see what their face looks like. Um, I have a friend who's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, and she said uh, she works with a lot of patients who are hard of hearing and they rely on lip reading and that someone invented a mask that actually has like a see-through area over the lips so that the patient can still lip read. I thought that was really interesting. And so, yes, we're having to really um, think and be intentional about how we can preserve as much human connection as possible, given these barriers of, you know, um, plastic and paper and just distance. And I wish I had a, a better answer than that, but I think it's really just that we're doing the best we can. Well, Emily, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with your podcast, The Nocturnists. I think it would be cool if you could sort of introduce the whole concept of what The Nocturnist is, and then speak about the, the new direction that the show has taken since the pandemic has started. Sure. So before COVID, I came on the show and talked a little bit about this project, which is basically a medical storytelling community where healthcare workers come together to talk about their life in medicine. And so we started off as a live show. Over four years, we went from an audience of 40 people to an audience of 700 people at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, um, and just started to do these live performances, which were really, really fun. People dressing up, coming to the theater, bringing a date. Uh, it felt like a night out. And we would audio record these live shows and release the story clips on our podcast, followed by a conversation with me. And so that's that was our model before COVID. And I think one of the things we were struggling with is we want to continue to grow and expand. And what does that look like? Does that mean doing shows in other cities? Does that mean doing like spin-off podcast episodes that have a different flavor where the stories don't necessarily come from a live show. Maybe we do some pre-recorded or pre-edited stories. And so that's the conversation that our team was having when COVID hit. We were in the middle of season three of our podcast and we just decided we were going to interrupt the season because we understood that, you know, nobody was going to be listening to these like non-COVID medical stories. Um, so we stopped and then we took a breath. And then we asked ourselves, okay, if we are a medical storytelling organization whose goal it is to create a space where healthcare workers can come together and express themselves and showcase their creativity and sort of unearth their thoughts and feelings and um, tell stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. What is our role during a pandemic? How do we continue with our mission and continue to serve healthcare workers in that way during this difficult time. And that's how we decided on this diary format. I, I think because we recognized that people were so busy, they didn't have time to sit down and craft like a 10 minute perfectly polished story with an arc and an opening scene and a closing scene and a climax. I mean, that takes a lot of work. That's Writers spend their whole lives trying to figure out how to do that well. We thought, okay, well, what if we just have somebody you know, maybe they come home from work or they come home from a shift or maybe they're not working at all and they just go in their bedroom and close the door and turn on their phone and talk into it for five minutes and just see what comes out. No preparation, no rehearsal, no writing, just raw, spontaneous speech. And when we put out the call for audio clips like that, 
we were really overwhelmed by the response. We had over 50 healthcare workers sign up within the first 24 hours. And now I think we're uh, well above 250, I want to say, healthcare workers who have signed up to participate, um, a decent chunk of which are participating on a regular basis. And so over the last, um, like, I want to say eight to 10 weeks now, we've been receiving hours and hours of tape. Um, every few minutes, we'll get an email in our inbox that says, so-and-so has uploaded a new clip. And we have this tiny and mighty team that is listening to these clips and sifting through it. And basically what we do is every week, we look at what came in over the last seven days and we try to come up with like themes and common threads and figure out like how do we juxtapose this clip against that clip or what is really shining through this week? What What's on people's minds? For example, there was the week of Passover and Easter and people had a lot of like religious themes on their mind that week. Or there was the surge when all of the COVID patients were just like influxing into these hospitals. And so we had a lot of clips from people who were talking about like just the patient load and how they weren't able to manage it. And then more recently, we've had more clips about the emotional fallout of this. People are finally having a moment to catch their breath and understand like, well, what does this mean for me? So every week we try to really put out an episode that expresses like the sort of moment of, of that week. The episodes are 30 minutes long, which is the same amount of time as our usual episodes, but the format is very different. It's, and it's very simple and very minimalist. It's just an introduction and then you hear the voices. Then there's a brief outro and that's it. We don't uh, try to frame or spin any of these stories in any particular way. We just air them out and do our best not to tell the audience what to think and just show it for what it is and let the audience map on their own experience and you know draw their own conclusions about what's happening and what's going on. And then we also take the audio clips that we air on the podcast and we put them on our interactive story map. So if you go to our website, you can see this map of North America and there's a dot. And we've been really lucky to get voices from all across the country, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, South. So that's a, a different way to interact with the stories is you can um, explore the map and hear the audio clips there. And what has been the audience reaction from your new form of, of storytelling? It's been really positive. The diarists who are contributing will often thank us in the diary entry for providing the space. They'll send us emails that say how cathartic this is and how you know helpful it is in helping them process what's going on in a moment-to-moment way. That said, I also acknowledge that you know, everybody has their own way of processing. And for some people, they don't like to process in the moment. They like to kind of put their heads down, do the work and like emotionally shut off. And it's not until, you know, three months later that they're able to kind of turn themselves back on emotionally and process. And so our show is definitely um, more useful for people who like to process in the moment. But we have found that you know, a lot of the doctors who participate in our project fall into that category and do find it very helpful. And then we receive the same type of feedback from our audience. Actually, there's a lot of people, both diarists and audience members, who thank us for the authenticity of the stories. Doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers have been in the news more than ever lately. And um, a lot of our diarists are expressing that they're not really feeling like the 
mainstream media coverage reflects their inner experience. Um, there's been a lot of use of the word hero and uh, hero worship. Uh, there's also been a lot of language around healthcare workers being soldiers or going to battle. The media likes to sensationalize things in that way. Our stories are not really like that. They're much smaller. They're much more about moments. Um, for example, we had this woman who was a radiologist who happened to give birth to her baby right around the time of the lockdown. And she sent us this beautiful audio clip that was all about the loneliness of social distancing and the loneliness of the postpartum period and just drawing parallels between those two things, which, you know, if we sent that clip to the Washington Post or the New York Times, they would probably listen to that and think, well, that's not really a story, is it? For us, what we like to think is that each of these moments, which feels really small and personal and intimate, I mean, they're like little micro histories. It's once you weave them together into this tapestry that this larger story starts to emerge that, in my opinion, feels a little bit more um, authentic and true to the nuances and the complexity of the experience of being a healthcare worker right now. Like, for example, somebody who we had a, a doctor in Indiana whose wife has cancer and is undergoing chemotherapy. And he's an ICU doctor, but he made the decision that he didn't want to put his wife at risk because she um, is getting chemo and her immune system is suppressed. So he was not going to go to the ICU and take care of COVID patients. And that was his decision. But he had a lot of guilt about that and was sending us these really intimate audio diaries about what that guilt felt like and, you know, kind of the the like superposition of states where on the one hand he felt like he was missing out on the action but on the other hand he was really relieved to not have to expose himself and to have this wife uh, situation as an excuse I mean it was just incredibly complex and I feel like those sorts of stories aren't necessarily the ones that you hear when you're like turning on the radio so I think that's one of the things that makes our project unique. We're not cherry picking these stories for their newsworthiness. It's more organic. We're just elevating the voices that come to us, whoever they are, wherever they are, no matter how involved or not involved they are with direct care of COVID patients. There's something wonderful about the medium of audio. There's an expansiveness to a story as played out in a podcast as opposed to something that runs in the Washington Post. I mean, I, I appreciate the print media stuff when it's, uh, when it's done well, and I think Washington Post is great, but it's gotta be brief. And because of the brevity of stories, you get more locked in to sort of a traditional narrative. It just has to work that way because people are going to, to scroll through it in 30 seconds to two minutes anyway. But with a, a medium like a podcast and what you're doing, there's this largeness and people, and I think patience, and that can lead to ultimately a more complex and a more true sort of depiction of what's actually going on. And I love that you have a multiplicity of voices. And I was going to ask you, would it be possible to listen to any of the, the, the clips that you felt have been um, the most powerful in, in such a way that our, our listeners could sort of get a taste of what's going on with the nocturnists and hopefully uh, become listeners of that show if they're not already? Absolutely. So I think what you're saying about the medium of audio is really true. And there are things that the written word can do that audio cannot do. For example, 
with the written word, you can play with language. Like there's a there's a way that a writer can use the English language as an instrument <laughs> and use it in ways that are really playful and you can kind of geek out on their writing style and their voice and how they use words and things like that. And that's a wonderful thing about the written medium that doesn't necessarily translate to the audio medium. What the audio medium offers that the written medium doesn't is things you can do with the voice. So everything from the use of pauses to tone to inflection to when you hear someone's voice crack with emotion or when you hear someone deliver a line with sort of the perfect amount of sarcasm or things like that. And, and also the other thing about the audio diaries that we've been noticing is the way that the environment leaks into the audio diary. So for example, somebody going for a run in their neighborhood and they stop running and you can hear them panting and you can hear the birds chirping and it really brings you there. Or we had another clip of a woman who um, was standing in an elevator and she says, I am holding in my hand a bag of convalescent plasma. And then you hear the elevator voice say, going up. And so it really brings you into their space in a way that uh, I think is harder to do with the written medium. So I, I think, I hope that it didn't sound like I was um, speaking disparagingly about the written uh, form or these newspapers, because I think newspapers and, and the media is super important. But you're right. I think some of the intimacy uh, that we get through our project does have to do with our choice of medium. And so I just wanted to name that. As to your second question about listening to clips, I would love to um, share some clips with you. So uh, the first one is from an internal medicine resident in Montreal who is named Corey. And what I love about his clip is he's just worked a night shift. So the clip opens and he's um, watching the sun come up over the city. And he talks about the experience of pretty much every patient in the hospital being a COVID patient, just the way that the disease has taken over in the hospital. And he talks about how when the pandemic started, initially he was excited because he's an infectious disease, aspiring infectious disease specialist. And he thought, what, you know, what better um, situation for me to bring my skills and to help than in a pandemic? Good morning. It is 6.30 a.m. on April 4th. I'm one of the internal medicine residents in Montreal, Canada, and I'm coming at you live uh, post-overnight uh, shift in the uh, emergency consults, well, general internal medicine emergency consults. Uh, honestly, like at this point, it's also just like everything else, COVID consults, um, COVID, COVID, COVID. Um, and if you couldn't tell from how articulate I'm being right now, uh, I'm kind of sitting in the call room watching the sunrise, like kind of bathe the city. And I'm like sort of like lost in this like trance of high LDH, high D dimer, high CRP, low lymphocytes bilateral hazy infiltrates on the chest x-ray, uh, one liter, two liter, three liter, four liter, high flow oxygen, intubation, no intubation, not enough beds in the ICU for intubation, phone calls, can I come see my dad? No, you can't, I'm sorry. What's going to happen? I don't know, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I remember, like, a few weeks ago, just being like, there's that kind of that excitement about that maybe first case, and now it's everywhere, and the ICU is full, and several wards are full, and I I just feel like it's just getting started. Like, the pace, like, the rate of change is just faster and faster. So, you know, like, I, I don't think I see, like, an end to this. It feels selfish and stupid to say, but, like, for... A young doctor, this is kind of, there's a level of this conceptually that's exciting. And I remember feeling excited about this work being like, oh my God, a pandemic. This is like kind of the holy grail of the discipline, like where we can maybe make the biggest difference. But, you know, just like the sheer amount of like, I guess, suffering that everyone is going through is just like, it feels really selfish that on any level I could have thought about this as something like exciting I'm not even sure that this is going to record properly through this uh, plastic bag but that my phone is wrapped in but it'll be worth the trial still just trucking along waiting for the day team to give me a chance to get some rest It's like two weeks into the pandemic, and I'm already pretty tired. (laughs) The next clip is a medical student in New York City who calls herself Sarah. And um, she talks about, well, in the first half of her clip, she talks about really wanting a cigarette. (laughs) And I loved that because I think there's just something so hilarious and ironic about a medical student smoking a cigarette. That's really humanizing. And then the second half of the clip, she talks about how even though she graduated early from medical school and has done a few different shifts to help out, um, she does spend a lot of her time working from home and how people are showering her with attention and gifts and gift baskets and calling her a hero and how, you know, if people actually saw her just sitting on her in her pajamas working from home how she would feel ashamed. This is Sarah in New York. It's May 11th. And I've had, I don't know, four or five hours of sleep in the past two days. Not because it's been busy or anything, just really bad insomnia. I was so exhausted. And at the end of the day, the only thing I wanted besides sleep was a cigarette, which I know is so bad. I haven't smoked in years since I broke up with an an ex who was a smoker. I was just really worn thin today, I guess. I wanted it so bad, and I was this close to buying a cigarette from the bodega across the street on my way out. But it occurred to me, like, how am I going to smoke this with the mask still on? Because I can't take the mask off on the sidewalk. So that's how COVID-19 saved me. I got a care package in the mail from the like the neighbors of the mom of one of the other residents. She organized this thing where everyone in the neighborhood is paired with a resident and sending care packages, which is so sweet. It's very nice. But part of me is like, why... 
I mean, this past week at least, I've been doing nothing. I've been in my pajamas. I'm living with my parents right now because I was between apartments when this all started, so I don't know. It, it really, it makes me feel very guilty. And then yesterday, I heard from a reporter who wanted to interview me about graduating early from medical school. I have no idea where this reporter got my information from. And I don't know. So I I said that he could interview me. I told him I didn't want to be like a, a big part of whatever he's working on, but I would be happy to be interviewed as a background, you know, for background information. I've been not very happy with the way a lot of this has been covered in the news about healthcare heroes and about um, early medical graduates being drafted or like signing up for war. That language makes me very uncomfortable because I don't see myself that way. And I don't know, I think it's... I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I think that when people talk about me like I'm going to war, that's a that's an excuse for it means it's okay if something bad happens to me if I get sick. And it means we should be prepared for you know, we've signed up for the risk. But you know, I didn't sign up for risk. I signed up with the hope that this school, the hospital would protect me adequately, you know, to the best of their ability. So I guess I just didn't want to attach my name to something like that without knowing how it would be written about. And I think also I don't want to, you know, I feel like imposter syndrome. You know, I'm hearing from all these people about how great what I'm doing is and how proud they are of me. I'm getting check-ins from family and friends all the time. And, you know, I feel like people are looking at me and seeing this hero and I feel ashamed, like, if they saw what I'm doing now, would they really, like, they, they would know that I'm not worthy of this. I don't want to put my face on something, claiming to be something that I'm not. Anyway, hopefully I'll be able to fall asleep easily, unlike the past couple of nights. I've really just been tossing and turning and staring at the ceiling it's like that thing when you want to go to sleep so badly, but you can't. The next clip is from Marie, who's a hospital chaplain in Indiana, and she talks about the difficulty of ministering to her patients in the setting of social distancing, how the usual rituals around death, like whispering into the dying person's ear or anointing their body with oil, or even things just like holding a gathering, like a funeral are not able to be done right now. And so how do we honor the deaths of our loved ones when so many of these rituals are out of our reach? I'm a hospital chaplain. I've probably been a chaplain for over 20 some years. Worked in hospice, worked in nursing homes, worked prison, social justice, but right now I'm a hospital chaplain. And I just got done with another shift at the hospital. and. Everything has changed. Everything's, it's so much of chaplaincy is about perception. So much of chaplaincy, it's not what people think. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not all prayers. It's not judging. It's not saving. It's not um, taking attendance. Chaplaincy is what we call a ministry of presence, 
where we, we listen to the person, we're, we're there for them and their spirituality and where their values are, whether it's a religion, whether it's nature, but everything's, everything's gone now. It's, it's so difficult because there is no perception. Your perception, those nuances that, that I would see when, when I talk with a patient, the way their eyes move, the way their hands move, their expressions on their face, just the way they sit, just the way they interact, that's all gone now. It's gone because I'm wearing a mask. Trying to give spiritual presence when you're wearing a mask, um, a literal mask, is, is not real inviting. Um shouting prayers from a doorway it, 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 it's beyond words a couple of weeks ago um, when this started patient was in and um, they wanted prayers but I couldn't go in the room because there's not enough PPE which which is I find that almost ridiculous we're talking about I have a mask I have gloves we're talking about a paper gown because these are patients who weren't tested positive yet. So I, I so what's stopping me from my ministry of presence is a is a dollar store paper tablecloth I could wrap around me as a shroud. So instead of I'm standing in a doorway and I'm shouting feels like the Hail Mary at a patient. That's not chaplaincy to me. Um, it's so difficult because there's these rituals the rituals of life and death and and even the simplest of rituals now we can't do the, those simple things the, those simple things of just being next to someone the, the simple things of like putting your hand over someone uh, of touching a shoulder of, of, of making the sign of the cross on a forehead of anointing someone with oil um, no matter what the religion it's the simple things of for certain religions of whispering in their ear at the moment of death um, ritual washings, all of those things can't be done now because even though they're simple, they can't be done because I can't come in the room because of this disease. And I'm not a martyr. I'm not a martyr. I don't want to get infected. Of course, I, I want to be safe, but but part of me is like, I don't understand it. I found myself listening to someone talk about his 92-year-old mother who had died. And he talked about how she was still undergoing dialysis. But this this fear that gripped her, this fear of this disease, just, just was totally paralyzing her. And when he took her to her dialysis, they wouldn't let him walk her in. For two years, three years, he had walked his mother into dialysis. And he had set her in her chair and and he had, um, you know, gave her her afghan, and then he'd come back, and he'd come pick her up. And this day, he couldn't. And after dialysis, the nurse called and said, we've, we've not seen your mother like this before. She never made it to another dialysis. And he looked at me, and as he looked at me, he started talking about his faith, and he started talking about the songs and the hymns that he and his sister had picked out for her because she was a good churchwoman. And they talked about the hymns and the services, and they, they even at that hour of death, their their faces started to to lighten up a little bit to think about that that mat, to think about that funeral service she was going to have. And then they stopped, and then they looked at me, and they said, "We can't have that, can we?" And I said, no, not now, not now, but hopefully 
you'll be able to have it soon. There's just so much of chaplaincy where there's so much where it's like distance grieving. We're, we're grieving from a distance. Grief is hard enough. Uh, the fourth one is uh, from Kate, who's an ICU travel nurse in North Carolina. And she talks about how she actually hasn't seen a lot of COVID patients but the normal cases that they would see, like the heart attacks and sort of the bread and butter, are not coming into the hospital because they're afraid. And so she talks about how there isn't enough work for her. And she actually got laid off because there just weren't enough patients coming in so that her work was no longer needed. And she also talks about how um, she's imagining these people just dying of heart attacks in their homes because they're too afraid to come into the hospital and contract the virus and how a lot of people are probably struggling with the loneliness and using drugs and alcohol to escape the loneliness. And she's speaking to this anticipated second wave of once the virus has died down, all of these people coming into the hospital who have been putting it off for so long. So I thought that was a really prescient clip. I work as a travel nurse. Um, I'm currently at a hospital in North Carolina. I've been here since November. Um, I travel as either step down or ICU and I'm in a step down position right now. Um, this is a very strange time nationally um, where I'm at right now does not have very many cases and the city hasn't been very affected. Um, but where I'm seeing the biggest effect locally is in our staffing. When the corona and COVID started coming out, our hospital uh, at first upped the number of traveler contracts that they were accepting, I think. Um, but some of my friends have been there since January and December, like I have. And now we can't keep our hours um, I think last week I worked the most hours out of the travel nurses and I only worked 19 hours. Um, I've tried to get contracts. I've tried to cancel this contract early and maybe get a job someplace else that has a higher need. And even so I can't get hours out there. Um, and then yesterday I got a call that they were canceling my contract. It's very strange that in this time that you know, is a pandemic and we have a certain set of skills that can be used, you know, we still can't, we still can't contribute. And that's kind of hard to sit on the sidelines. Um, our hospital doesn't have very many COVID cases right now and hoping that we don't. Um, but what I'm concerned about is that our census has been so low. We've shut down whole units. Um, we put six or seven nurses on call each shift and, you know, I'm concerned that where are all the patients who are, you know, having heart attacks or where are the patients, you know, who are having normal stuff? I'm, I'm concerned that once we pass, once we hit a, a tipping point, that there's going to be patients that haven't been coming into the hospital with symptoms for weeks and weeks just because they didn't want to be, quote unquote, in the hospital. So I'm concerned that there's going to be patients with cellulitis who come in and say, oh, I've had a pain in my leg since the end of March. Or people are at home and not doing anything and drinking alcohol and people are going to come in and, you know, with newly jaundiced eyes with abdominal pain. And, you know, you ask, well, when did your eyes turn, you know, turn yellow? 
And I'm afraid the answer is going to be weeks ago. So I think our healthcare system, once we, I guess, convince the public that hospitals are safe again, quote unquote, um, I think we're going to get hit by a second wave of just people who have been sitting at home and been too scared to come in for diseases that are not COVID related. I think we're going to get so swamped, they're going to be short-staffed as soon as those nurses from the other unit are pulled back to their unit. We've been putting six to seven nurses on call a night, but once those nurses, you know, have to staff their own, we're going to be so short and those patients are going to come in so sick. It's weird to be an essential, quote-unquote, employee, and I can't get a job. I don't feel... Essential. I'm clearly not essential. My hospital canceled me. Um, and then in general, with the with how they're organizing all the PPE, I feel more uh, disposable than I do feel essential. And now I don't feel anything. The the first time that you came on Voices of Esalen, we we spoke about the mission of the podcast, which was to my mind about humanizing the healthcare profession and kind of like going in behind the mask. And then this huge crisis comes up. And my question to you is like, does creating a show like this, which has gotten even closer to the heart of, of healthcare workers, does that make you feel closer to your, to your fellow physicians and, and healthcare workers? Has it, has it filled in some of the gap? I mean, has it, has it given you sort of a, a sense of mission? Absolutely. For a lot of people, this has been a really lonely time. And for me, it's actually been one of the least lonely times. I kind of always feel lonely. I always have. I grew up an only child. My parents were quite a bit older. I loved them very much, but never really could relate to them. Didn't have siblings. And I don't know. I've always been the type of person who had like really strong one-on-one relationships, but was never like a huge joiner or part of like a group or a clique or anything. And I've just, I don't know, been one of those people who walks around feeling sort of lonely and melancholy at baseline. (laughs) So you would think that um, in this time, those feelings would be exacerbated. But in a way, I feel more connected than I ever have because, you know, I'll just be sitting in bed at 9 p.m. and I'll get an email and it'll say, you know, this this hospital chaplain in Indiana just sent in a clip and then I'll hit play and I'll just lay there in my bed and listen to the voice. And often I'll send that person an email and I'll say, you know, Hey, I just, I don't know you, but I listened to your clip and it was really powerful. And this is what touched me. And, you know, and they'll respond and they'll say, you know, thank you. um, Thank you for doing this or whatever it is that they say. I even had one woman email me and um, she was like, hey, I can't sleep and I really want to send in a clip, but I'm not really sure what to say or how to do it. Can you give me some tips? And I also happen to be laying awake. And so I'm like emailing with this um, just total stranger who's a doctor across the country in the middle of the night. And she ended up getting out of bed and going to record this clip. And it ended up being a really powerful clip. So I just, it's like I have this... um, community, this virtual, it feels like a virtual like campfire almost. Like we're all sitting around the virtual campfire telling stories about what it's like to be a doctor right now. And 
that's been a huge element of my coping mechanism dealing with this virus. As I mentioned, I haven't done a whole bunch of COVID shifts, but I have done some. And so every day when I drive to the hospital and I'm preparing to, you know, gear up and suit up and go in the room and take care of these patients, I feel like I have these voices with me. Like I just I just feel so much like I'm not alone. And I hope that that's what the show is doing for other people. And it's so it's definitely solidified my mission of creating a medical storytelling community. This question of, you know, doctors spend their careers taking care of other people, but who takes care of doctors? Like, this is a question that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Who takes care of doctors? Who takes care of doctors? Who? I don't know. I feel like part of this work with the nocturnists is to attend to the spiritual healing of doctors in a way that maybe they're not getting it from their own bosses or institutions or um, superiors or even from friends and family who just don't understand what it's like. They just couldn't possibly because they're not in it. So yeah, I think this crisis has definitely grounded us in our mission in a way that's more clear-headed and just deeper. And we're really interested in seeing how this evolves and how we can continue to serve each other in this way. Perhaps you could just end the uh, our conversation by letting listeners know the easiest way to tune in to the Nocturnist and perhaps what the future of the show might hold in, in terms of ways to consume it and, and what they might discover. Sure. So if you're interested in hearing some of these voices, uh, you can go to thenocturnist.com. That's our website. You can read all about the project. Um, you can uh, see our interactive story map. There's also a link to the podcast, which you can listen to wherever you get your podcasts. It's just the nocturnists. And in terms of how these stories will be consumed in the future, as I mentioned earlier, we started as a live show and it appears that, you know, live theater events are on hold for the foreseeable future. And I don't know when those are going to come back. So we are really having to rethink our identity right now. And if we're not doing live shows anymore, what are we doing? And I think right now our plan is just to continue with the audio diary project until it feels like it's running out of steam. And once it does run out of steam, uh, we'll probably close it and call that the end of phase one, but definitely not stop. I think we'll just have to start thinking about phase two what does the next phase of this project look like? And I read this great um, tweet by a neurologist who said that when people suffer a neurologic injury, we don't talk about recovery so much as we talk about like reimagining the future. And so my instinct is that as we start thinking about phase two or phase three of this project is um, we're going to be asking a lot of questions, not about how, you know, the road to recovery, because I don't know if recovery is even the right word for this. But now that this has happened, how do we reimagine our future as doctors, as nurses, as hospitals, as clinics, just as a healthcare system in general? Where do we go from here? 
Dr. Emily Silverman, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Sam, thank you so much for having me. Take care. The last clip is from Greta, who's a pediatrics resident in San Francisco. And this one, I just included it because it makes me feel really hopeful. So she loves to sing and um, she has a couple of friends, one of whom is her husband and one of whom is, I think, one of her co-residents who also love to sing and play instruments. And so she talks about how they had to work really hard to get the key to get um, into a room with a piano. And finally, they got into the room with the piano and they do this beautiful performance of Lean on Me by Bill Withers, who died of coronavirus. And we closed out one of our episodes with this musical clip. And it's just one of my favorite clips because I feel like it really speaks to the way that we've been leaning on each other during this time and also honoring um, the music of Bill Withers. So I'm a pediatric intern in San Francisco. My husband, his co-intern and myself got together yesterday to sing together. We had to work some magic to get access to a real piano. We thought the song's lyrics were particularly fitting, um, especially given Bill Withers' recent passing. This song is a message of love and support to our East Coast colleagues.
Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, and Kelly McKay. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. <laughs>